Lamentations chapter one. Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. She sobs through the night and tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among foreign nations and has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down and she has nowhere to turn. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan. Her young women are crying. How bitter is her fate. Her oppressors have become her masters and her enemies prosper. For the Lord has punished Jerusalem for her many sins. Her children have been captured and taken away to distant lands. All the majesty of beautiful Jerusalem has been stripped away. Her princes are like starving deer searching for pasture. They are too weak to run from the pursuing enemy. In the midst of her sadness and wandering, Jerusalem remembers her ancient splendor. But now she has fallen to her enemy and there is no one to help her. Her enemy struck her down and laughed as she fell. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, so she has been tossed away like a filthy rag. All who once honored her now despise her for they have seen her stripped naked and humiliated. All she can do is groan and hide her face. She defiled herself with immorality and gave no thought to her future. Now she lies in the gutter with no one to lift her out. She cries, Lord, see my misery. The enemy has triumphed. The enemy has plundered her completely, taking every precious thing she owns. She has seen foreigners violate her sacred temple, the place the Lord had forbidden them to enter. Her people groan as they search for bread. They have sold their treasures for food to stay alive. She mourns, oh Lord, look and see how I am despised. Does it mean nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see if there is any suffering like mine, which the Lord brought on me when he erupted in fierce anger. He has sent fire from heaven that burns in my bones. He has placed a trap in my path and turned me back. He has left me devastated and racked with sickness all day long. He wove my sins into ropes to hitch me to a yoke of captivity. The Lord has sapped my strength and turned me over to my enemies. I am helpless in their hands. The Lord has treated my mighty men with contempt. At his command, a great army has come to crush my young warriors. The Lord has trampled his beloved city like Grapes are trampled in the wine press. For all these things I weep. 
Tears flow down my cheeks and no one is here to comfort me. Any who might encourage me are far away. My children have no future for the enemy has conquered us. Jerusalem reaches out for help, but no one comforts her. Regarding his people Israel, the Lord has said, let their neighbors be their enemies. Let them be thrown away like filthy rags. The Lord is right, Jerusalem says, for I have rebelled against him. Listen, people everywhere, look upon my anguish and despair, for my sons and daughters have been taken captive to distant lands. I begged allies for help, but they betrayed me. My priests and leaders starved to death in the city, even as they searched for food to save their lives. Lord, see my anguish. My heart is broken and my soul despairs for I have rebelled against you. In the street, the sword kills and at home, there is only death. Others heard my groan, but no one has turned to comfort me. When my enemies heard about my troubles, they were happy to see what you had done. Oh, bring the day you promised when they will suffer as I have suffered. Look at all their evil deeds, Lord, and punish them as you have punished me for all my sins. My groans are many, and I am sick at heart. Let's pray. God, allow the words of Lamentations 1 to come off the page for us. Help us to step into the story and the suffering from which they were born. God, teach us something in the midst of this. We we acknowledge, God, that you are here. We, we welcome you, invite you to continue speaking, to continue moving in our lives. There's something uniquely heavy and intense and challenging about the work of lament. And so would you be gentle with us as you teach us over this season of Lent? Would you help us pay attention to the suffering of your son Jesus and the, the suffering of our own lives and the lives around us? Do you help us stay in that space while our eyes look forward to your resurrection? God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather together in this space, to sing, to pray, to call on you, to speak to us, to cry out, whatever it might be that we need. And so I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what it is you have for us as individuals today, God, but also as a community of people speak to us. God, I pray that my words would not be my own, but that they would come from you and they would be for you, God. I pray that you would hold up our time today is a time that brings honor and glory to you and draws us into deeper intimacy with you. We love you. We thank you for loving us. We pray these things 
In your son's name, amen. Around four o'clock on Monday afternoon of this week, I received an email from a friend of mine in which she shared an image that had kept lingering in her mind during one of the gatherings last Sunday as we began this adventure of wading into learning the art of lament. Here's what she said. She said, I had an image come to mind and stick in my head yesterday during the service after you mentioned the tension that exists between pain, sorrow, and joy. And I've been reflecting on this image of someone holding two separate cords of glowing white-blue light, one of which is joy and the other of which is pain. It occurs to me that in life, peace may be the action of holding in tension both joy and pain with the goal of uniting those two bright cords to connect and find God's peace that is beyond our understanding. It seems like each time God restores or uses or redeems a situation of pain in our lives, we are able to move that pain cord a bit closer to the joy cord. And each time we truly experience God's joy, our joy becomes greater and allows us to inch the joy cord toward the pain cord. I'm not sure they ever come together this side of heaven, but I'm intrigued to sit with the hard idea that pain still exists in God's peace. And that I should not expect to find peace only when I arrive in a place where I am in control of my circumstances and feel happy and pain-free. Now, this is beautiful and challenging. However, this was not the end of what God wanted to share with me and then ultimately with all of you. Shortly after reading the email, She sent it around four, I read it about six, I finished the email, and I opened up a book I had been reading. My mind was still on this picture that my friend Jillian had given us, and on the very next page, the words on that page jumped out at me as if they were flashing. I was reading a book called Encountering the Spirit, I was reading this for the doctoral work that I'm doing, and on this page, there was an excerpt from a 1976 magazine. This excerpt that was in this book that I was reading had been used as an example of a prophecy that they wanted to share. I know, it's a little wild up to this point. So I'm reading a book about encountering the spirit and I begin to encounter the spirit. And here's what the excerpt said. Again, moments after I'd concluded that email. This excerpt is from the perspective that God is speaking. My children, I want you to look closely at the festal garment in which you would be clothed. I want you to see a dark thread which is inextricably woven into it, for it is the thread of suffering. It is the suffering of the father whose son was slain before the foundation of the world. It is the suffering of the son who has set his face steadfast to go to Jerusalem, enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him. It is the suffering of my spirit that allows himself to be grieved by your willfulness and disobedience. It is the suffering of my church which is bruised and persecuted for my sake yet not defeated. I want you to take my oil of joy for mourning, my beauty for ashes, my garment of praise for your spirit of heaviness. But you must realize that you cannot know the power of my son's resurrection without the fellowship of his sufferings. 
If you attempt to remove the dark thread, you will find your garment falling into holes and you will be naked in a laughing stock before the eyes of those who have no love for you or for me. So here we sit. These two threads holding up the garment of this life. And if you are alive today, if you are breathing in this room, well, then you have lived this tension too. We are currently unified in that way that we all know the real life tension of joy and suffering, of sorrow and pain and the praise that we want to give in this life. Yet, who among us is prone to relish our suffering or the suffering in this world? Like, who is prone to call out in it? We just want to get past it. And again, I'd argue that we have a tendency to dismiss our pain and our sorrow, our grief and our suffering because we're not vested and versed in the art of lament. But even if you have waded into the waters of lament, I might assume that if you're like me, you probably have the propensity to censor your lament before God. Lament, by way of definition, is a passionate or open expression of grief or sorrow or weeping. And I'm not sure we're actually able to access the fullness of what the scriptures teach us of lamenting if we're worried about censorship. What if God welcomes and invites our uncensored lament? Because here's the thing I believe about lament. God can handle taking on things that aren't true about himself. God can handle taking on things that aren't true about himself because in our moments of deepest pain and grief and suffering, God's heart is even more broken than our own. God weeps with us. His love is one of long suffering and patience and he knows us to the depths of our being. So he being God must be able then to parse out our fluctuating theology in the midst of guttural cries. Certainly he can handle that balance. Our God is a God who weeps with us. In the historical context of the book of Lamentations, we see that the people of God have brought this, this destruction upon themselves as a result of their sin, right? We read they had many sins, they sinned greatly, they gave no thought of their future. And the fallout for the entire community of people is utter devastation, they're laid bare. Sin to its core is destructive. So upon first look, the book of Lamentations seems like it might be really bad PR for God if this is what he's like. Yet it seems, though, that God was not the author of their destruction and suffering. God gave the people chance after chance after chance. If you know the history of the people of Israel, it's that God longed for them over and over and over and over and over and over again to turn back to him. He gave them chance after chance. He does the same for us as well. Our God is a patient God. He's slow to anger. 
And so it is that this is where their choices led them, just as God warned them it would. And even still, even still, space is created for them to cry out with outrageous honesty. All of the paradigms and images of God that we have stored up in our heads and hearts are called into question when we encounter the book of Lamentations. In Lamentations 1, as April just read to us, we hear from two voices. One of the voices is the narrator. And the narrator seems to be giving a fairly unemotional account of the suffering and devastation of the people of Jerusalem. And then we have the voice of a woman. Jerusalem itself is given the voice of a woman. And I would argue there is theological intent to the author personifying Jerusalem as a woman. They do this on purpose, right? Because first, historically, the people of God are referred to as God's bride. And now we have a picture of God's bride committing adultery. But as the illustration grows, we're provided a unique look now into the shame and abuse and assault that is inflicted upon women. We're paying attention to what that means. It seems that the theology of suffering in the book of Lamentations and in the context of pain actually calls for a culturally feminine voice. The woman is the one who has to cry out so that we might pay attention. Old Testament scholar Kathleen O'Connor states this. She says, the poetry of Lamentations, because each chapter of Lamentations is a Hebrew acrostic poem. She said, the poetry focuses on Jerusalem's female roles, widow, mother, lover, and rape victim. And by making Jerusalem a woman, the poetry now gives her personality and human characteristics that evoke pity and disdain from readers. You start to feel something. Building on that, scholar Sung Chan Ra, who I'm deeply indebted to for my study on Lamentations, he says, Lamenta Lamentations may prove to be the most important book of the Bible with a dominant feminine voice. It's really interesting to look back and see that Lamentations is the voice of a woman crying out. And so in the face of tremendous suffering for the people of Jerusalem, women's voices rise up to express the depth of the sorrow that they've experienced in the midst of their community. What does this mean, perhaps? This is why we, too, must pay attention to the voice of women among us. Because where they are often expressing sorrow will point us to some form of suffering which will lead us to evaluate and ultimately repent of any role we might have had in the suffering that they're pointing out. Let us pay attention. If we miss anything as the church, let us pay attention to the faithful women in our midst in the same way that Jesus valued the voice of women in his so that we might learn the fullness of God's work in this world. So that we do not just have one voice telling us what it means to be the people of God. The voice of suffering of the woman that is Jerusalem seems to be calling to us. 
beckoning us to pay attention, reminding us that praise in the form of joy, right? The other thread must actually follow lament. We cannot uphold triumph and victory, failing to engage in the suffering, letting our praise replace lament. Lament is the bridge that draws them together. Because moving too quickly beyond the suffering of our lives and this world It does not serve the suffering other and instead only adds to the suffering. We have a very picture of that at the forefront of our country right now with what's happened in Parkland, Florida. Let us not move too quickly to a place of triumph and victory, failing to engage the suffering, letting ourselves understand what it means to lament. We must learn the art of lament. But where do we begin to go from here in learning the art of lament? Sung Chan Ra says it like this. He says, lament presents the opportunity to call to God for his mercy. It acknowledges the need for God's justice and mercy that does not arise out of one's own strength and ability. Lament challenges the church to acknowledge real suffering and plead with God for his intervention. For the complete biblical narrative to take root in our community, lament has to become a part of our story. We must be careful not to move too quickly to praise from lament. This is where the season of Lent that we're in becomes our teacher. This is the first Sunday of the season of Lent, a time in the church calendar when we historically acknowledge before God our own sin, our need for a savior. We join in the suffering of Jesus. The idea is that for 40 days you follow Jesus into the wilderness, anticipating what will happen at the end of that. For us, we certainly look back through the lens of resurrection, but Lent is essentially a season that forces us to sit in the suffering. We cannot move too quickly to Easter Sunday. It's not here yet. And so it fights against our urge to rush past the pain and sorrow and grief and suffering in our own lives and in the lives of others around us. It kind of sheds a little different light on the idea of giving up chocolate for Lent, doesn't it? It doesn't quite seem adequate to help us understand what it means to join Jesus in his suffering. Jean Venet has said this. He said, each one of us finds it enormously difficult to accept ourselves as we are. With that extraordinary mixture of weakness and strength, ignorance and wisdom, light and darkness, love and hate. In fact, he says, We flee from something that I'd call our vulnerability, our immense fragility. And because we flee from that, it's why we need a season like Lent. It's why we have to learn the art of lament, to embrace the freedom of passionately and openly expressing our grief and sorrow, learning that there's a place in which we're able to cry out. But Lent has another component too. And it's this component of repentance. So we also follow Jesus in the way of repentance that he lays before us. 
Jesus preaches repentance, and whenever he preaches repentance, he says it's because the kingdom of God has come near. That is, God has come close to us. God is near. God is among us. And so repentance is about intentionally adjusting our life to that reality, that God is with us, among us. We turn back to God. To repent means that we acknowledge that a life turned away from God doesn't contribute to human flourishing. Just ask the people of Israel as they write their lament. And so in this season, we are as individuals turning back to God and as a community turning back to God. We'll have an opportunity to take a step in that direction when we share communion here in a moment. But before we move to a place of repentance as a family, let me bring us back once more to the picture of the suffering of Jesus now seen through the lens of Lamentations. In Lamentations 1.14, the narrator speaks on behalf of Jerusalem's despair, crying out to God, he wove my sins into ropes to hitch me to a yoke of captivity. The Lord sapped my strength and turned me over to my enemies. I am helpless in their hands. And as I look through that verse with the lens of Jesus as my guide, I imagine Jesus saying something like that yet in his own words. It's as if he's saying, right, you you all have let your sin weave a rope holding you captive. You are tied up in your own sin, but I am here willingly losing my strength, becoming weak as Jesus does, right? Turned over to my enemies. Jesus is intentionally helpless in their hands for our sake. Jesus has gone first on the road of suffering, showing us the way to go. As my friend Carrie said to me, when we suffer with Jesus, our suffering has meaning, even sweetness. If you cannot find your own suffering in this season of Lent, of this season of following Jesus into the wilderness, well then join up in Jesus's suffering. Join with his and you will find yours as well. The, the suffering you've buried and ignored or the suffering that's present right there bubbling at the surface, join in with Jesus in his. You see, Journey, as we learn the art of lament, we get to plead with God to intervene in our lives, in the lives of our brothers and sisters suffering around the globe, and in the lives of those right here amongst us. That is our prayer, God. We need you to intervene. Let's go ahead and spend some time with the Lord. There's a lot that we're processing during this time, and I wanna give you space to see whatever it is he might be saying to you to sit still and quiet before him. Maybe begin the process of preparing to repent if that's what you need to do. But take a, a few moments. I'll close this in a second. As you continue to just sit in a place of prayer with your eyes closed, would you 
Would you just let your mind's eye imagine this with me? Imagine Jesus on the cross. Rich Philotus says, when we rush to explain what happened on the cross without truly beholding Jesus on it first, we often unwittingly turn his crucifixion into a detached, rational, religious articulation of a doctrine and not as a catastrophic event that should render us dumbstruck and awestruck. Let us pause together and let us view Jesus on that cross. God, is that picture of your son Jesus on the cross stays there in our mind's eye. We see a picture of your love, your sacrificial willingness to make yourself weak for our sake. We see your suffering being endured. For our sake. You show us the way, Jesus. And so as we have that picture still in our mind, God, would you prepare us to remember it in a moment here when we come to your table to receive communion. And I pray that you would free us from the, the rote religiosity of coming to the table and taking the bread that represents your body that was hanging on that cross and taking that wine that represents your blood that was shed on that cross. Let us remember, truly remember that you, through your son Jesus, love and sacrifice and suffer and you invite us to go the same way. As we come to the table, and we eat and we drink of your flesh and your blood, let us remember that you are the only one that makes us whole, the only one that saves us, the only one that restores us. And so that's why we come because you have shown us that the way down is the way up. And so we are filled by you and your saving death on the cross, Jesus so that we might go and live the lives you have for us. God, let us as a community acknowledge that you, Jesus, are the head of our church and that we need you. Be gentle with us as we learn the art of lament, as we wade into the places in our lives that are uncomfortable and unknowable. And teach us your heart. Teach us your love. We do all of this for you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.